Wake up there, folks. We're on the dock. It's Pastor Troy right here. We're in the studio again. Got a great podcast for you today. We're doing an early morning shoot for you. I don't know if it's nighttime or early time for you, but we are sitting on the dock of the bay and we are ready to do what we do. We're on the dock.org. Go find us. You can find all of our backgrounds and all our information from the past. We'd love to have you jump in. Go back to podcast number one and just catch up with us. We're going to be up in the, you know, we're already shot almost 70 right now. So it's going fast and going great. We release new releases every Tuesday and Thursday. And what are we about here? We're about getting you to sit down with us on the beautiful dock. You see those beautiful chairs. We want you to sit down with us. Christian friends, sit down with us today. We're going to bring people in that can coach you in your faith, encourage you, excite you, propel you. We've got a great one in the studio today. She's going to enrich your spiritual journey. She's going to excite you, but we don't want you to stay in those chairs. You're just in the chairs for the, the podcast, but we're going to get you out of the shadows. We're going to get you into the deep. If you take a look at that picture, Lucas will throw back up. See the sun out there? There's a pass there. You get in the boat, you get off the dock and you sail on out there into the deep. There's a lighthouse on the left and that's where God will watch over you and get you out on your mission. So we want to propel you out. We want to encourage you. We want to get you out. We do want you to come home and tell us what happened. Give us testimony and witnesses and share your story. But we want to get Christians out there doing the things of God. God has a plan and mission for everybody's life, everybody that's listening. And we want to encourage you in that mission and voyage. So take care of that. Hey, you can find us all the time at YouTube, Spotify, iTunes. Those are our main platforms, but we're available also on Google Play, uh, Facebook, Roku, Rumble, and SermonNet. And we got a social media presence on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Telegram, and Getter. Just We use that just to let you uh, know where we're available. We shout out and tell you. And uh, you always can ask us any questions or comments. If you want to find out more about a show or a guest, uh, talk to us about that. If you want to get involved, let us know, and we'll help you there. When you find our presence, hit subscribe, like, notify, and comments, and share those things. And we would always like you to be a partner or a sponsor. You can go to our Patreon site, download the Patreon app, and you can go find on the dock with Pastor Troy. And we have four tiers of partnership available so you can partner with us and help us propel this program out. Or you could also, if you've got a business or an organization, you could be a sponsor. There's three tiers of sponsorship. We'd love to talk to you about that. All these things you can go to onthedock.org. You can find links to all of our platforms and you can find links to our Patreon site as well. You can also email us at info at on the doc.org. We can answer any of your questions anytime. So we're glad to have you here uh, with us in the studio and just sit back and relax. Look at this beautiful studio. We've got Dr. Henna with us here. Dr. Henna, welcome back to uh, On the Dock. You've been great. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. Fantastic. I got to my got to my right here. We got her up early this morning. She's been to makeup and hair. Mm. She's, she's got everything done. It's my wonderful wife, Mother Beth Benetone. Welcome, Mother Beth. Thank you. There's not enough makeup today. There's not enough makeup no. today. Have you had coffee? I have. I'm having my hot tea right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm having hot tea. You're, you're back to water what, and a Pop-Tart. And a Pop-Tart, but I didn't get to start it yet. I'm not sure if our executive <laughs> producers cleared Pop-Tarts for eating on the air. I mean, Pop-Tart's a name brand. I have it turned we over. We need a sponsorship. If you're with Kellogg's, we'd love you to give us a call. We have a sponsorship program. Uh, there's three tiers. We would expect you to be in the top tier, please. Yeah, and we'll put a big pop tart on the table right here. And if you, for, for for a top level sponsorship, Lucas will put on a pop tart suit. He can run the whole executive producer in a pop tart suit. Yeah, I, if you picture pop tart, Doctor Hannah, do they have pop tarts? You ever eat pop tarts? No. I don't oh, it's a, yeah. Have. You don't think you have to? It's kind of got a really bad pastry that's in a package. That's probably not going to be good against sponsorship. But uh, it's a big cookie. It's a big cookie or a big pastry, <laughs> and we stick them in. You stick them in the in the, in the uh, toaster, toaster, and they pop up and they warm up. And we just mostly eat them cold. They, they have chocolate and Rocky Road and strawberry. What do you got there? You got strawberry? Strawberry. Strawberry. 
Yeah, now we're going to vacuum the studio. Yeah, strawberry pop tart. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, it, Europeans are disgusted by it. You know, any, any, any Italians would be, but uh, us Americans, we have a very low, low bar when it comes to pastries. We're just. I didn't we, have time to make scrambled yeah, eggs and bacon today. So. Yeah, it, it, which is what most mornings she doesn't make scrambled eggs and bacon. <laughs> so, so we're in the studio here. We're, we're doing a series called Healthy Women, Healthy Liberia. And we're going to talk a little bit about Dr. Chris Henna's story today in this episode. And we're going to be doing another one here behind that and talking more about what's happening today, what the vision is for tomorrow in, in the next episode. But I, I, I just want to hear a little bit about her story. I think there's some powerful things in there and what she feels comfortable sharing. We'll just leave that up to her. But uh, I, I do think there's probably some young people out there that have dreams and visions of the kingdom. And I, I think you can let them know that, that these things are possible. So that's what we're going to look at. Let me just give an overview again, Healthy Women, Healthy Liberia. Dr. Henny, your ministry is based out of Liberia, Kakata? Yes, Kakata. Kakata was there. You're, are, and you're from Kakata? Yes. Originally. So, that, so you're kind of full circle. You've been out and around. You've traveled the world pretty extensively, correct? Yes. You've been around the United States and you've, you've been around the world traveling for, for various missions and different, different outreaches. Um, but you ended up back where you started. Correct. I mean, you, you told me earlier that you're, you're so close to back where you started that, that, that where you built, where your clinic is today has connections to your original roots. Just amazing. Yeah. So, so it's just amazing. So you're literally back where, where you began to dream and dream about what, what you could do to help your people. And do that. So it's just amazing. The mission of Healthy Women, Healthy Liberia, you can go check it out on their website, is, is to help promote health, the health of the people and educate patients through comprehensive, sustainable, community-based primary health care. If you go back and listen to our part one and part two, uh, she extensively talks about community-based as being the answer. It's almost upside down. I think all of us today, we, we kind of see uh, healthcare as we need the government somewhere out there to do something magically out there, up there in the capitals and the places of influence. We need them to fix it there. Uh, Dr. Hannah has no concept of that. Her concept is the people locally need to band together into community and fix it right where they're at. And she has turned that model upside down and is engaging community health uh, workers and, and people locally to start literally in their homes and their own communities taking responsibility for that. And it's caused a, a, a what I wanna say, just a dramatic uh, change in, in healthcare in her region. So, and I think it's an amazing model. Anything you wanna say about that? Did I get that right? Did I articulate that fairly? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. You know, if we, if we keep waiting for everybody out there to fix it, probably the people out there are gonna get tired because I, I think a lot of times we put our hopes in the magic of somebody out there being responsible for me. And I don't think you can get any better than being responsible for yourself. You know, I think, you know what I mean? I think, I think we've made a lot of miscalculations on that as Americans. We always think it's, it's their fault out there. They need to fix it. Somebody needs to pay for it for me. I need it free. And, and what you're really saying is nobody should be more invested in my own healthcare than me. Correct. I, th I think we should always be our best advocates. And the community should be the closest source. And I think you've really done amazing work with that. The vision of Healthy Women Healthy Library is to transform communities using community-based healthcare models. And that's what she's doing for medical and dental care, even eye care now, um, through education and services, and especially for women and children. Uh, they're doing amazing work, and they're fixing to add a surgical center into their, their primary care clinic. Tell us a little bit, if you could, just, just a little bit, and we're going to get into you a little bit. But tell us about the Waterfield Primary Healthcare Clinic. What could you share about that vision and the plan? And, and how it's organized? Well, Waterfield Primary Healthcare uh, Center reminds me a lot about what God is able to do. Because like I said, when you go back to the first clinic, there was just one room. Hmm. 
and it was just me. And then another person came on, a young lady who had just finished high school. Uh, today at Waterfield, you now have PA, and you have a laboratory technician, you have nurses, you have community health workers, you have the eye uh, doctor, and uh, you have your own pharmacy. Even you have pharmacy. pharmacy. Yeah, you. We provide ultrasound, uh, EKGs for people coming into there. So looking back at the one room and looking at <laughs> how we have spread from that one room to many rooms and now many villages and communities uh, tells me that's the model we need to use over Liberia. That sounds brilliant. Uh, because most of the people, when you look at it, look at the population, they are not living in Monrovia where you have the bigger facilities. They are living outside of Monrovia. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how can we get health to them? Uh, the model we have used in the past has not worked yes. because we sit at the clinics and we want for people to come to us. But instead of coming to us, we are going out to them. That's great. Bringing them not only health care, because I strongly believe that health care still is not the solution to the situations and conditions that we have. Mm -hmm. right. Bringing Christ to them, right. restoring their dignities, uh, restoring just the, uh, the lost. After several years of civil war, they have lost everything. They have even forgotten how to care for themselves. And so bringing back uh, that love to them and reminding them that we are who we are because of who he is. And uh, combining that with health, I think it's making a difference there in the lives of the people, not only the people, but even in my own life. Absolutely. I, I think one, one of the things I think is simply amazing with what your model is, is in my years here, I've been going to uh, Liberia since 2008. And I have seen NGOs, I've seen WHO, I've seen big organizations put in millions and millions, hundreds of millions, billion dollars maybe during the Ebola. I've seen so much money come in through NGOs and NGOs. And your organization has, has got a great donor base. You've gone out, you've, you've raised every dollar. You're in communication with the churches and the friends and the local donors and the organizations. And you have worked very hard there. And, and you guys have had a very generous group of donors, built a very reasonable facility, been very good stewards of every dollar you've gotten. Every 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 item's been donated to you um, and taken. You're very careful with that. And, and I, I just to be honest with you, you have a very modest facility. It, it's the best facility I've seen in, in Honduras. And, and, and I was in Honduras. They had nothing like what you've got. Honduras is a very poor country. Liberia is the poorest country kind of in that region. And you've got a facility that's modestly well done. It sets a standard for everybody above the bar. You've got generous donors in your organization. But they've been good stewards. And I would bet that if I, if you looked at the total dollars invested to be where you are today, it's a fraction, a small, small fraction of what's been spent there to try to change healthcare in Liberia. You, you've spent maybe hundreds of thousands and hundreds of millions have been spent and you have been more successful with simply trying to re-empower the people than any other model so far. You talk about cost effective and something that to me is highly, you say in your mission, sustainable. 
and I would say reproducible. How do you how do you get your model? How do you get that thing to transfer beyond Margabee uh, into other models in that? I th I'm asking something hypothetically right now. How does that thing reproduce itself beyond uh, you? Well, uh, that's why it has been interesting in not just controlling everything, but bringing in the young people. If you look at our clinic, they're all young people. Very much so. So many young people getting the vision. I see that. That this is possible. This is something I can do. Yeah. Investing my time into their lives. So you see, do you see the potential of like a community healthcare worker gets inspired, they become inspired like you. And next thing you know, that, that community station becomes someday a clinic of its own. Everything, everything could grow and develop through this. Absolutely. I see the villages. I see us now bringing in others that we can train and send them back. Send them back. So that they can be there uh, taking it. care of their own people. Because we do not live in those communities. We may never be able to live in all the communities at all the yeah. time. But if you can get one person with a vision and uh, that person catches that vision to go back and care for their own people, I think that's the model that's going to yeah. be reproducible. The Bible says the Bible says without a vision the people perish. It's mm -hmm. very true. I I I do believe that so much money has been thrown at the solution in Liberia, and the money wasn't the solution. The vision was, and and the vision being connected to the heart of the local people mm -hmm. so that they could begin to be a part of it themselves. You have found the key to doing something with great stewardship and great leadership. And it's, it's been so much more effective than things that people could write large checks for. But, you know, it still costs money to do the ministry, but you have found a way to do it where the people are the partners in it and they have ownership. Yeah. And for example, uh, Pastor Troy, uh, uh, when we have had situations in Kakata, uh, the first people to reach out comes from Waterfield Primary Healthcare. Uh, when the clinic, uh, the hospital burned in Kakata, we were able to put all the resources together that we had and took it over to C.H. Rainey Hospital. Wow. When we heard of situation in Monrovia where people were just starting their own ministry that was similar to ours, we collected everything we could and we donated it to them because we knew they were going to be able to take care of it. Another place in Liberia, Dr. Joseph Kekula, He's reaching out to a very poor neighborhood. We're able to supply him with all his beds and mattresses. And it's just, we're just a little organization. I know. When you think about it. But God has given us the heart to reach out to the people and be able to serve them. What you're saying is so that's uh, vision, generosity, compassion is all transferable. Yeah. And, and, and by, by inspiring your people, they, they have, they've also been ready to inspire their, 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 their fellow citizens, the other people in the Republic of Liberia. Correct. It's just amazing. And, and what I like about it is it doesn't start in Monrovia. It starts in a little village called Kakata mm -hmm. in Margabee County. A great, great, a great people, a great place there. It starts, it doesn't start in the, the metropolis. It starts in the, in the village. Yeah. And I think it's amazing. And let me ask you a question. I want to get into you just a little bit. Um, how does, how does somebody go from, uh, Dr. Hina shared in part one that, that when she was younger as a child, one of her friends died of malaria. And, and when she died of malaria, it was then that she said, I want to be a doctor. So they, they originally said that the, 
that, that she died of witchcraft or, or yeah, witchcraft. witchcraft. And, and Dr. Henner realized that something wasn't right about that. And what it was was malaria, not something occultic, something very treatable. And that inspired you then to become a doctor. Correct. And when I said malaria, I believe my father was very instrumental because uh, having malaria in Liberia, most kids did not live to be five. Oh, wow. But my mm. father gathered us every morning, uh, Sunday. He lined us up and he gave us our anti-malaria medicine, chloroquine. Uh-huh. And we had to take chloroquine. It was almost like mandatory. You had to stand before him and took it. So when my friend died, I thought perhaps she did not take her chloroquine and that's why she died. It had nothing to do with witchcraft mm-hmm. uh, because of that experience with chloroquine that she may not have had in her home. So looking back at it, I think that was my father's exposure to us of taking anti-malaria drugs that made me to think that something must be wrong here. This picture is not correct. Because she is the same age as I was. Why would they take her and not take me? Why would she die and not me? So it was because I was taking my anti-malaria medicine. Maybe she did not. I don't know whether she had or not, but I. But it could have been just as simple as not taking, not taking her regimen. Regimen, yeah. You know, Doctor Henna shared with us that, like coming out of the war, uh, when we first started there with them, there were about fifty uh, doctors in Liberia. She says now there's probably a little bit over a hundred. It's beginning to grow again. They lost some in Ebola. More have been going to school. We, we've had doctors that we have sponsored through our Hope Scholarship Fund, so that is some growth. But four point six million people. Less than a hundred, maybe a hundred practicing doctors, but some of those won't be practicing. Some of those will be running uh, state healthcare. They'll be bureaucrats in a sense, uh, running stuff. I find that a lot of the doctors there get promoted and get into the various ministries. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you a hundred doctors for four point six million is a very high patient to doctor rate. Um, how how can a little girl in Kakata? I've been to Kakata. I have spent a lot of nights in Kakata, a lot of nights. I've probably spent the equivalent in the last since twenty. I probably I've probably spent a year of my life in Kakata because you know, I've been there for thirty days multiple times. Um, how did the little girl sit there and have a dream about being a doctor, and then then in twenty twenty her clinic's going to treat last year treat over twenty thousand people. How do you get from that dream to where you are today? Tell tell us what you can tell us there. Well, uh, this is actually interesting. Uh, this uh, year, there was a young nine-year-old girl that came to our clinic through our PE. She came and said, uh, Doc, I have a little girl from the church that I go to, and she would like to come. She has uh, no school, and uh, she's at home. She would like to come to the clinic. And I said, sure, let her come. Uh, so she came, uh, really tiny, little girl, nine years old, wow. but extremely brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I asked her, why uh, do you want to be here with us? And she said, I want to be a nurse. I said, oh, great. If you want to be a nurse, then I'm going to rotate you through the different departments. And she did absolutely very well. Mm-hmm. She went to the lab and she saw how they did uh, things in the lab. Uh, were able to just allow her to do minimum things for her age that she could do. 
and then took her over to the pharmacy. She was able to see how they dispense uh, uh, medication, brought her into the ultrasound room with me, and just showed her the different organs as I was doing the ultrasound. And she went from room to room to room to room. So imagine at that age, nine-year-old, what's going to happen to her when she becomes 15 or 16? Obviously, she's going to be attracted to this experience. Mm -hmm. So for most of the young people out there who are desiring and have a dream, don't just sit and dream. Uh, I want to become a doctor and never even know where a hospital is located. I mm -hmm. uh, want to be an uh, engineer, but don't even go around people that are engineers. I think it is so important for them to have the dream and make sure that they find areas where they can be exposed. Because mm -hmm. when I uh, desired uh, to become this doctor, I started off by cleaning the wounds of children in my community, not having no idea. It was just so primitive. When you came, I will bring water and wash it, and then took old rags and tied it. And for me, that was hospital. But then uh, when I was in the ninth grade, uh, I was on a boarding school. I had come down for my holidays, and I told my father I wanted to become a doctor. And so I have a friend at the maternity center in Monrovia, so you can come and go with her for the three months you'll be off, and then you'll go back after that. I was so excited. When I got to that hospital in Monrovia, it was the maternity center. Imagine I was only in the ninth grade. <laughs> and so they made me the janitor at that hospital. And I didn't know any difference. I thought, since I wanted to become a doctor, and now I'm being a janitor, this is great. And I was there scrubbing the floor every morning. Doctors would come walk past me, up and down in a clean white lab coats, and just didn't pay attention to me. Mm -hmm. And then a lady a doctor uh, came and stopped me and asked one morning, I see you always cleaning this. Uh, who are you? And I was so excited. I said, I'm Christina, and I want to be a doctor. And my father said, I should come and work here. And she kind of, with this big smile, she said, if you want to be a doctor, this is not where you belong. I was like, this is not where I belong. I'm in a hospital. And she said, tomorrow morning I'll be here. So you come with me. She took me into surgery. Wow. She took me into deliveries. She took me everywhere on her rounds. Yeah, I was with this lady. Wow. Even the same doctors that passed me, I had to be in the dining hall when they ate because she took me to the dining hall to eat with her. So that was a wonderful experience for me. It just opened up this beautiful world of medicine that, again, uh, made me uh, so... Uh, interested in wanting to be this doctor because of that exposure. So for any young person wanting to do the same, I think it should be not just this dream. I have a dream, but actually to put low attachments to it. It's those attachments that really opens up uh, the, the, the path, I think. That's incredible. Any follow-ups on that? 
What, what when you when you when you first got the vision to be be a doctor and you started the process, brilliant what your dad did. He, he got you exposed. Uh, he put you in position to be exposed to somebody that, that could, could could help with your vision and your dream. I guess if you never left the village, never cleaned the floors, never did the janitor work, you would have never met a person that could become a mentor to you. Did you stay connected with that doctor after that for a while? Oh, yes. Uh, she helped me through even my medical career. And uh, if I had any issues, I would call and talk to her, consult with her. And uh, in fact, she was home in September. She lives now in Philadelphia. Uh, she came for my father's hundredth uh, birthday. Your 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 father's a hundred. Yes, he turned hundred, and so she came for that birthday uh, because my father actually respected her, that she took me under her wow. her wings and uh, mentored me, and uh, he was so excited. He wanted to know who I was hanging out with, and wow. so when I told him I had his friend, who was in Phoebe. And uh, she wanted me to go and spend some time with her. My father took me there to make sure he knew who I was going to be with. So uh, she respected him for that. What, 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 what is the school path? I mean, you're in Kakata. Were you going to a Christian school as a child or were uh, you in public school? I went to a Catholic school right in our town. Uh, that was the school that was closest to our house. Mm -hmm. It was a private school. And so I went to that school from uh, first grade through the eighth. To the eighth grade. Yeah, and then my father took me to a boarding school that was on the border with uh, Guinea. Wow, that's Way quite far away. Far, far away from so everything. So were you by yourself there? Did you? Uh, there were three siblings that uh, he sent. There. Yeah, but I was the oldest and uh, two others. Were you there through high school? Through yeah, high school? I finished, I graduated from there because that's where my father graduated. And so he wanted his kids to have the same experience. That's fantastic. Very rural. There was nothing. It was <laughs> only education, nothing else. But, but, in pa the, palm trees. Palm, palm trees. Palm trees. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, and rubber a big, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lopa's very remote. A very huge remote. Episcopalian church. In those days, there would not would there have been a road like there is today? It would have been a very difficult journey there? Oh, very difficult. Very difficult. Uh, it was more than 14, 15 hours. And so drive. you might only get to come home once or twice a year yeah, at best? Yeah, you came home in December. In December. Uh, for Christmas. Amazing. That was, that Amazing. was it. Amazing. So how did you get from high school to where you are, what, what were the steps? Did you go to college in Liberia? Yes, uh, I started off uh, my uh, biology degree at the Cottington University. Yeah. Uh, that's an Episcopalian, so it's a dream for everybody who graduated from Bola, which is our boarding school. It was considered a very competitive uh, school. And so right after you graduated, you could just uh, transfer to that uh, college. That's excellent. And so I did uh, in my third year, and then I got scholarship to go on to the Soviet uh, Union, and that's where my medical- uh, You got your medical training there? Uh, training uh, how, how long did that take? Uh, seven years. So you, 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 you had to go to Lofa away from your family, yeah. then, then you had to go to Cuttington away from your family, yeah. and now you, you leave so, the continent of Africa. Yeah. Was that, was that, was that, I mean, you're a little girl from Kakata. I mean, golly, that's a quite well, a journey. I, I think it was just so exciting for me. Uh, yeah. The desire was so 
burning in my heart to become a doctor. And, uh, but, but the language, did matter. you speak Russian? No, I did not know a word of Russian. <laughs> I mean, I mean it, those of you who don't Nothing. know, in, in Liberia, the primary language is English, but there's multiple uh, tribal languages. Mm -hmm. So so did you, you were taught in English, I assume. In English, in I had a and, and then uh, you, tribal background, are you Pele? No, I am Bandi. Bandi. Yeah. So so they would have a different language than the Pele people yeah, would. totally different. Basa. Uh, the, the, there's five or six primary, but there's what, 12, 13? 14 tribes. So, but English is the primary. So, so you knew English, but how does that help? Did Russia, did they teach their medical no. school in English? No, oh, no, 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 oh, no. no. Nothing. So nothing. you had to learn all that again. Uh, it was eight hours a day, six days a week. Wow. Very intense. And uh, three students to one teacher. And uh, you had to- Is this for the language? The language, like, just uh. the language. So, so you had a dream as a child to go. You know, I think people think you get a dream, God's just going to hand it to you. Joseph had a dream that God would use him, but it took 20 years. He had to go through prison. He had to go through captivity. He had to go through being a servant. He spent time in jail. Joseph did a lot to get to what God showed him. So so the first thing I think you hear in this story is just because God gives you a dream doesn't mean it'll be handed to you easily. No. <laughs> you work very hard. You had to work very hard because imagine... All of my previous education was in English. Yes. <laughs> and uh, math, uh, it's very difficult. Biology, chemistry. Very difficult. And then uh, all of a sudden, you are learning a new language that you're going to function in. And it was so intense. Uh, at the end of six months, you should have been able to take your notes and think in a Russian language. Wow. And uh, you think... What am I doing here? What's the benefit if I have to study in this language? And Russian language, uh, I don't know about Chinese, I don't know about Japanese, but it is absolutely difficult yeah. mm -hmm. because of the six cases that my name would change into Russian language based on those cases. Mm -hmm. And yeah, in Africa, we didn't learn about six cases. You learn uh, cases, but not six, and my name didn't change in any. So that was the interesting part. But once you got the the concept of that language, uh, you really enjoy it because it's very rich. Mm. You right. you can use just about any words you want to to describe things, and it went uh, well. How, how, how soon? Go, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so uh, spending uh, the year to really learn the language. After that, then you are sent to where you're going to spend the rest of your time. Uh, six years, seven years, uh, five, So, So four, you start depending. off just going to learn how to how yes. to navigate. Yes. So almost like preparatory. Yes. And then you got and to then, your vocational training. Yes. Okay, go ahead. Yes, so but after six months, then you start adding like chemistry. So six months is just the Russian language. Wow. Nothing else. And then the seventh, you add math, you add chemistry and physics. Because you need to translate what you learned in college yes. now to the Russian way yes. to do so it. So yeah. at the end of the year, you are fluent enough to be able to function in that language. But you're, mm. still, but you're still an African girl from West Africa yeah. in the middle of Russia. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, you had to be, it's amazing. 
I mean, to see to be in a massive new, a whole different paradigm. Whether you'd be brought to America or UK or Australia, it would be a completely different system. But this is really different. So it was absolutely different because we are not speaking of Russia today. Right. We're speaking of Russia of yesterday, mm-hmm. when uh, communism and atheism was the philosophy, mm-hmm. when humans were uh, absolutely looked at differently. Much different than you're, you were raised. Much, much, much different. Much different than we were raised here much in the United different, States. Much different. Yeah. And, and you came out, and you mm-hmm. came. You said you came out of an Episcopalian family, a, yeah. a church-based family, and you're going into a secular society. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a big, big change for, well, for not, a little girl. Not only a circular society, but a society that tells you absolutely there is no God. Oh, zero. There is no God, zero. So everything you knew about a God now... You need to just forget it. Forget it. Have nothing to do with it, uh, which was a challenge in itself because uh, it, it's, it's not possible to forget no. uh, what you already have. Because it's, uh, it's obviously in deep in you. The, you know, God's yeah. had his hand on you through the process. Did, did, and it's part of you. It's not just yeah, something it, you believe or don't yeah, believe. It's, it's, it's part of it you. Inha- it, it's in you. What, were you able to maintain your faith through the process? Uh, definitely. Uh, I am thankful God. to God for the underground churches. Wow. Yeah, I am very thankful. Uh, there are no underground churches today, uh, which is unfortunate. But, uh, yes, the underground uh, churches, the believers that I met uh, they were absolutely out of the book of Acts. Oh, wow. Yeah, they lived just like book of Acts uh, teaches us to live as believers. So when most people would think you wouldn't experience any God, you actually experienced the Bible, of the, the, what we read about in the Bible. Yeah, you experience God at a more deeper level than... Mm-hmm when you have freedom that we take so much for granted. Because don't you, I agree with that. Yeah. Don't you think we just take it for granted? Yeah. We think, oh, it'll be there. But if you don't have granted. it, it becomes much more richer. Yeah, you yeah. go into homes, you see they have different types of Bibles on their shelves and they may not have ever opened it. And then there, even only one Bible was a risk in itself. Just itself. Because you had to cover it so that people will not know that's a Bible. You have to read it in a place where uh, there were only privacy and you just couldn't just read it. Uh, But you had to, as a believer, make it very clear that uh, I am a believer. You couldn't hide that, that you are a believer. Because if you were uh, a believer and said, uh, well, I'm not, I'm just, uh, I would keep it in my heart and nobody will know I can do whatever they want me to do. And then later on, God knows my heart. He sees my heart. You couldn't be lukewarm. You either was a believer or <laughs> you are not a believer. Do, do, so you're not, you didn't have room in between. Do you think put, God put people Do you think God put people in the path along your way to help you through the journey? Oh, there were many. There were many. There were many. Like, uh, like I said, uh, I was raised in an Episcopalian home. And... Uh, I never saw a Bible. I had my book of common prayer, and that's what we used. And so on. The same doctor who introduced me into medicine introduced me into the Bible and to Christ. 
that really uh, transformed my life. So she was the first person, and then when I met the underground believers who were just on fire for the Lord, so again, they left uh, footprints. And the interesting thing that happened in, in the Soviet Union, you were brought to the Soviet Union to be indoctrinated. Uh. So you are indoctrinated, and then you can go back home to your place, and uh, you will be the best person to propagate that system. So they recruited people from Africa, Liberia, and other countries. The Middle East, uh, Latin and America. And brought you to everywhere. train you in the language. Yes. And then to train you with the yeah. goal of sending back that indoctrinated person yes. to help, I guess, to indoctrinate the country. Yes. Because, to be leaders. Yeah. Boy, it didn't work out well with you. No, well, it, didn't, <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't work out with a lot of other Africans that came. You have people from Ghana, from mm. Guinea, from Ivory Coast. Those were students. And then you had people from Latin America. You had people from Middle East that were uh, believers. So what we discovered there, even people that were not believers who came and were really communist and atheists and they loved everything they heard. When they came, the underground churches reached out to those people and they became believers. So you have a lot of people today still when you go to the Middle East, you go to Africa, Latin America, you ask them, where did you become a believer? They'll tell you, we became believer in the Soviet Union. We're and you think, how does that happen? <laughs> this was an atheist country. But yes, the underground believers were very active. Yeah, I, th I think we need to all be reminded, listen to this, that what she's telling you is something right out of Acts. And I think we forget we're in a modern world today in the United States where everybody can kind of be a Christian if they want to be. And, and Christianity is pretty blase today. But but I want everybody to understand how Christianity started was Christians became Christians and even Jews were against Christians. The Roman world was not supportive of Christians. So from the very early time, from the very early time, Christians were persecuted in the book of Acts, all through the, Paul, the letters of Paul and Peter, <clears throat> James and John, when they're traveling, they are always the opposed by the establishment of those communities throughout Europe and Rome. And what you learn is until 300 to, to Constantine, uh, the emperor has the revelation of Christ. Christians lived in a hostile world where they kept Christianity in their own closed communities in their own tight places. Many times we learn in like in Ephesus and different places that the Christians had to do business amongst each other because they weren't, nobody else would do trade with them. Nobody else would hire them or, or employ them. So Christians were very close communities. They even worshiped in hiding. They worshiped in the catacombs. That's where you have the catacomb worship because Christians would be captured by the Romans. They would be executed, used in the games. There were more Christians killed in those 300 years of Christianity than were ever killed in the Holocaust or anything else because simply being a Christian in those first 300 years was a sentence of death. And it could be, at best, it was ostracized. So what Chris is talking about is how Christianity was born, is how Christ inspired the church to start. She's getting to people who are more than just, I go to church, they, they have the experience of being the church. And I think it's very powerful. And we're, we're, we're starting to see some of that in the United States where just pedestrian Christianity no longer exists. You now have to make a decision. When you tell somebody today, I'm a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, you're making a statement about a whole series of things that you probably believe, and now they're going to suppose you believe those things. And now the, our, our, our United States now will challenge you, can you really live that out? 
So you're telling me the underground church in a very difficult time was living that out in such a real way it impacted your life. Yeah, and then also people from Sweden uh, had an impact as well. And then you had Americans who, in those days, uh, you could not uh, have a church there in uh, in the Soviet Union. But all the foreigners uh, had the opportunity to meet at different embassies. Right. Uh, so you could meet at the U.S. embassy, the British embassy, the Canadian embassy. So there was that group of fellowship. And uh, I came across uh, some Americans who, after everything, brought me to this country. Uh, they have since passed away now, both of them. But I still have other friends uh, in Charlottesville. Uh, the time he was in, uh, in the Soviet Union, he was the general. Uh, and uh, he and his wife, their, their lives also impacted my life, uh, being there as a young uh, student. Uh, so there was just a lot of footprints uh, yeah. that God uh, saw just how all of these things were going to work out. Let, let me do Let me do this. I, I really like where we are right now, and I'm going to keep us in the series. But what I want to say is we've started this uh, part three here on Dr. Hannah's story. I want to come back here in part four, and I want to go a little deeper in into your story because I want I, the footprint and the handprint. I, I want to take that a little farther, and I think that's important. And so we're going to come back in part four here, and we're going to delve into your story and talk about the hand and footprint and how you got back to Liberia. Cause you, you're, you're a girl, your little girl, you've been, go, you've gone up to boarding school in Liberia and now you're in, in Russia. Now you've got the influence of other people that have been a part of your life. And, and somewhere in this process, you're going to get back to a country and you're going to come back to a country that does not look like the country you left. It was war torn. It had been fighting a war for 12, 15, 14, 15 years, and you're going to come back and you're going to be somebody that helps rebuild that country. So I want to talk about that as we finish your story in part four. So we'll come back to part four and we'll start that here in just a minute. So I got that slide up for you, Lucas. Uh, we're going to be back with Healthy Women, Healthy Liberia series. Uh, we'll be talking about Dr. Chris Henna and her story in part four.